Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Our current series is called Hidden Angels. The premise behind this series is to highlight certain people in our congregation who have done amazing things for other people. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today comes from Genesis chapter 6, where God is beginning to note that the people are not exactly behaving as he would wish, and this is building up to the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 20. This is Paul talking here. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact, It is no longer that I do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, can you believe I chose this scripture passage, by the way? like tongue twister on Sunday. All right, now, if I, do not, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. The word of the Lord. So we are doing a sermon series called Hidden Angels, and each week the premise is that we're going to lift up people in our congregation who have done amazing things for others. So each week we will watch a pre-taped interview, and then that will lay the foundation for what we're going to be talking about. We'll look at it from a cultural, spiritual, and social perspective, and then from there we will jump off and we will ask, how is God expecting us to live differently as a result of all of this information? I want to say before we jump into our interview for today that this sermon series is 11 sermons long, and each week we're looking at a completely different topic Uh, and those topics range. So I don't expect that each of these topics is going to resonate with all of you in the same way. But as I said before, I hope that one of them, you'll see one and you'll say, you know what, I really want to invest my time and my energy into making a difference within that issue. So I just want to remind you of that, that, you know, this is important that you don't say, oh God, I got to do everything that Alex is asking me to do. It's not like that. I just want you to take this one thing and run with it. So let's watch our interview for today. Okay, my name is Liz Moses. My name is Bob Wendling, and we've been attending First Prez for about a year and a half now.
understanding or, or, or trying to make some sense of addiction is important for me because I grew up like Liz, I grew up in an alcoholic home also. Um, my mother was an alcoholic and she died when she was 48. There is, there is a solution for it, but it's one that almost none of us want to take. And uh, um, I'm an alcoholic and I would almost rather die than go for help. And that's pretty common. So, uh, but uh, recovery has made all the difference in my life and it's really the reason why I'm alive today. Well, recovery is really important to me because growing up with alcoholism in my home, it was very um, chaotic and it ruins lives. It destroys lives. You know, we say, you know, alcoholism is like a tornado, you know, it just tears through your life. You know, by the time I was 30 years old, I knew that I wasn't functioning well, you know and I've been able to recover from how I've been affected by it. And because of that, I've seen the hope that comes from uh, putting the effort into you know, working with people that have addictions. Uh, Larry Hayes was one of the most uh, wonderful people I've ever known. And I've met a lot of people that are wonderful in Alcoholics Anonymous and in Al-Anon, uh, but few of them have had that thirst for the spirit, for uh, spiritual uh, awakening, uh, like Larry did. Because the whole point uh, in the 12-step program, doesn't matter which one you're in, the 12th step says having had a spiritual awakening as the, the result of these steps. We're supposed to practice these principles, meaning the other, the first 11 steps in all of our affairs. And I, from listening to him talk, I know he wasn't like that before he got sober. Once you get to know him, you know, I mean, he just brings out the best in people and people loved him, you know, and um, I remember going to a, a, a very sad funeral for a young man who died too young from alcoholism. There were hundreds of people there and I knew probably half the people in the room, you know, but then Larry showed up because Larry also knew him and he knew most of the people in the room, you know, and it just it just kind of amazed me because he just he was able to in a short time just get to know people and love people and he showed up when it mattered. I see that happen, that miracle happen in, in Alcoholics Anonymous all the time where people come in and they're just a mess and they don't know how to be friendly and, and they've come from doing horrible things that they're ashamed of and because a few people say, you know, that's okay, you know, we have, we know people who did the same thing you did or I did the same thing you did and then you're not alone anymore, you know, and I think that that's what we're called on as Christians to do is to, to be there for others to say you're not alone, I'm there too, I've been there too, I'm not exactly where you are but I know how you feel and you're not alone and I think that that is what we're supposed to do and so this is an area where you can have the opportunity to maybe make a difference in somebody else's life. All right, well, I want to say thank you to Liz and Bob for their willingness to be interviewed, particularly for their bravery to talk about their struggles with addiction. 
I also want to thank them for taking the time to talk about how integral Larry Hayes was to their lives. Uh, for those of you who didn't know Larry, and I know there's some of you in here who don't know who he was, um, he died earlier this year. He had a huge impact on a lot of people, uh, not only in this congregation, but out in our community here in Chicago. And we're going to talk more about what he did for people who were struggling with addiction right here in this church. But to begin, I think that we need to acknowledge that there's no person in here who is immune from the effects of addiction, even if you yourself or your family doesn't struggle with addiction issues. I know for a fact that there's going to be members of your extended family or there's going to be people within your circle of friends who do. Now, addiction takes on many different forms, many different forms. But today we're going to be talking primarily about drug and alcohol addiction. I am sure many of you in here are aware that we are living in a time with unprecedented levels of addiction. It's hard to turn on the news on your television or read it on the internet or does anybody here read a newspaper anymore? You know, it's hard to, to look at these places and not see some kind of reference to the opioid epidemic that is out in the world right now. To give you a sense of how bad this is right now, on average there are 115 opioid-related deaths per day in the United States per day, and it spans the whole socioeconomic spectrum. This is not an issue that is relegated to people living in poverty. And because of that, people are starting to ask the question, how did we get here? How did things get so incredibly bad? Well, there's a lot of different factors at play in this crisis, but perhaps one of the most important is the production of synthetic opioids by pharmaceutical companies. Synthetic opioids have actually been around for a long time, since the early 1900s, but they start being produced in mass quantities in the 1980s, although doctors were very reluctant to prescribe them because they knew them to be highly addictive. But this all changed in the early 1990s when Purdue Pharma came out with a new kind of opioid known as OxyContin. I'm sure you all have heard of it before. OxyContin was said to be unique because it was time-released. You take one capsule and, or one dose of it, and it would be released into your body over a period of several hours. And so as a result of the time-release mechanism, they said that it didn't come with the cost of addiction like traditional opioids did. Now, Purdue Pharma spent a lot of time and money promoting this drug. They held conferences for doctors where they talked about the benefits of OxyContin for their patients. They spent millions and millions of dollars on ad campaigns where they talked about OxyContin as essentially being no more potent than extra-strength Tylenol. And they also pay doctors hefty sums of money to promote and prescribe OxyContin for their patients. And prescribe, they did. In 2013, what many people consider to be the height of when the prescriptions were being made by doctors to people in the United States, doctors prescribed oxycodone, which is the active ingredient in OxyContin, 53 million times that year. Now, that's billions and billions of those, of those pills, and that doesn't even take into account the number of sales that took place on the black market. So clearly, clearly, Purdue Pharma and all the other drug manufacturers who jumped on the opioid bandwagon were lying. OxyContin is highly addictive, and even more than that, 
It's very expensive. Now, because it's so expensive, that meant that these drug companies made billions and billions of dollars in profits. But also, once you became hooked on these synthetic opioids, because you couldn't afford to keep using them, very often people will start jumping over to things like heroin. Because heroin is cheaper and achieves the same basic high. Once you're hooked on either of those things, the chances of you being able to get clean are very, very low. It's hard to get off of opioids once you're addicted to them. But the proliferation of these drugs into our communities is only one reason why this is happening in our world today, why the addiction levels are so high. Yes, doctors were overprescribing. I think we can all agree to that at this point in time. They were prescribing this stuff way too much for after surgeries and people who had pain from injury. But I don't think that that gives us the whole picture because there's still a very large percentage of people who started using these drugs when they had no reason to. They started using them recreationally. And I think that this raises a really important question for us today, which is why, given the risks associated with these opioids, would people take the chance of destroying their lives by using them? And I want to take some time to talk to you about this today, because I've been thinking about this for a long time. I have a number of members of my family who are addicts. I have friends who have died from addiction. So this is something that I've really been turning over in my mind a lot. And I want to offer you a different kind of explanation today, one that you maybe haven't heard before. My explanation comes from a place of theology and evolutionary biology. These two things combine together into one. So I think at the core of the issue, if we're really kind of breaking it down, I think the reason why we find ourselves in this place today is because of the technological innovations that have happened over the last century. Now, when I use the technological innovation, when I'm saying that, I don't mean the fact that we've produced all these new drugs that can get you high, which is true. We have produced a lot of drugs that can get you high, a lot more than we've ever had. What I'm talking about when I'm referring to technological innovation, I'm referring to how technology has improved our standard of living to a degree that was unimaginable throughout the vast majority of human history. If you look back, human beings have been on this earth for about 100,000 years, homo sapiens, what we are today, right? We've been on the earth for about 100,000 years, and in that period of time, there have been four things that we've been struggling to overcome, which in the last century we have taken care of. So one is disease, the second is sanitation, the third is starvation, and the fourth is labor inefficiency. Those four things we have been able to overcome in the last century. Now, I want you to think about something for a second, and this is kind of crazy. Throughout that 100,000-year period, the lifespan of a human being oscillated between 30 and 40 years of age. 30 and 40 years. Now, why was that the case? Well, life was hard, if we're just going to be perfectly honest, right? You could get a disease. Do you all remember smallpox? All right. You get smallpox. That doesn't just kill you. That can wipe out whole swaths of the population. You could be walking along in the forest and get a little nick from a branch, and that nick can get infected and could kill you. Drought was very common. You could run out of food very easily and just simply starve to death. I know that's hard for us to even imagine today, but you could do that. And then when the resources became scarce, you would get attacked. Other humans would come together. Wars were very common, so you could die from that. Not to mention just surviving when the temperatures became too hot 
or too cold. So, as a result of all of these hardships, our brains literally evolved over the last 100,000 years to anticipate and deal with a lot of suffering. Like from the time you were born, you and everybody else in here, your brain was saying, okay, we got to get ready because there's going to be a lot of suffering in the world. It's preparing for that. If you want proof of this, you just need to look at the third chapter of Genesis. Third chapter of Genesis. We're three chapters into the book. And what happens is Adam, he eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and God places a curse on Adam. This is what it says. Take a look at this. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Now, what does this curse reflect? It reflects what humans had to face for the last 100,000 years, which is that human life was defined by suffering. But over the last 100 years, we have slowly removed the causes of suffering from our lives. So today, thanks to vaccines and antibiotics, most of the deadly diseases and infections we can get have been eradicated. When we look at the world in terms of food, we have a We have plenty of food. We just have to get it to the people who need it these days. And if you live in a country like ours, a developed nation, you don't have to worry about the violence of war in the same way that we used to. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but regardless of what the temperature is outside, when you're inside, it's 70 degrees year-round. It's pretty nice what we've been able to create for ourselves. Now, you with me so far? You haven't zoned out on me, have you? All right, good. All right. Now, here's the thing. All of this technological innovation, we are at a place now in human history where the first time it is feasible for a person to live their entire life without experiencing any major suffering at all. I want you to think about that for a second. We are at the, this is the first time in history that this is possible. So if you are a middle-class American, living in the 21st century, you experience a life of such intense ease and comfort that we have become disconnected from the suffering caused by nature. To the point where today you see parents saying, I don't want my children to suffer at all. So when you look at somebody who's been given everything. They're born into a nice family, a loving home. They are given nothing but everything they need to survive in the way that they should. They want for nothing. They've been given a good education, and this person turns to drugs and all of a sudden starts using and gets addicted, and you ask the question, why? Why, when they were given everything, did they do this? I think the reason why, the spiritual reason why, is because when you remove all of the suffering from human life, when you remove those causes, we end up creating suffering for ourselves. Now, let me explain to you why this happens. So I told you in the beginning, right? 100,000 years, we evolve. What does your brain do? It's anticipating, and it's thinking that you're going to deal with what? A lot of suffering, right? Your brain technically doesn't know how to live without suffering. And then you come into your life, and there's no suffering to be found. Everything's good. You're going along. Well, what's going to happen? 
Your mind, all of a sudden, is trying to fill that void, and it's going to fill it with suffering. So we've created this interesting paradox for ourselves, which is that we've created this wonderful world for humanity where our innovations have removed suffering from our lives, and then ironically, we go out and we create that same suffering for ourselves. Because when you remove all the causes of suffering, we feel this emptiness inside. And so we're going to fill it with things to create suffering. And sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, but sometimes people do that with drugs and alcohol. And so what the Bible tells us, and I think this is very true, and this is going to transition us into talking about this concept of why we do this, basically this emptiness we feel from this world that we've created for ourselves, it triggers what we call our evil inclinations, our evil inclinations. Are you with me? Have you zoned out? Are you still on page with me here? Okay, because this is where the rubber meets the road. So this concept of evil inclinations, you find it in the scriptures. It's actually in the Genesis reading that Judy read this morning. Let's take a look at it again. It's the reason why God wants to flood the earth. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. The Hebrew word for evil inclination is yetzer hara. And what this refers to is not evil in the sense of like demonic forces. What it means is when humans misuse the things the body needs in order to survive. Now, let me give you some, some examples of this. So, let's take food. So, when eating is no longer simply about satiating your hunger, but about indulging your appetite, then you go from something good, eating as a means to nourish your body, to something bad. You know what we call that? Gluttony. Sex is another example of this. So, when sex is no longer a product of a loving relationship, but rather about fulfilling your sexual desires. You go from something good, sex as a natural consequence of love and intimacy, to something bad. What do we call it? Lust. So these evil inclinations, the way it's defined in the Bible, this is very important, is when your mind becomes preoccupied with making the same mistake over and over again. It's when your life becomes oriented around a particular destructive behavior that ends up defining your life. And of course, what comes to mind when you think about this more than anything else is going to be drugs and alcohol. Now, if you've ever known anybody or you've been an addict yourself, you know that your life revolves around that habit. And the reason why is because this drug has literally hijacked your free will. You don't have the same choices you used to have. And this concept of not having the ability to make your own choices, that's what Paul, in his own way, is talking about in Romans. So, take a look. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Can you relate to that? On some level or another, can you relate to that? Like, your heart wants you to do one thing, right? And then your mind and body override your heart and you do the exact opposite. Do you know that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Kind of, maybe, at some point, right? Okay, now, if you're addicted to drugs and alcohol, that feeling, that 
hijacking of your free will is intensified greatly. Let me give you an example. So if you're a heroin user, let me give you an example of how this works. You use heroin. It changes the biochemistry of your brain so that your body treats heroin like food. So every day, you know that your body sends a signal to your brain to say, hey, you need to eat so you have some nourishment. What happens if you don't eat? You get hangry, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, you get hangry. And then if you go long enough, what happens? Does it start to hurt? Yes, it does. Like if you go long enough, it actually is painful for you. That's the exact same feeling that a heroin user gets when they don't use heroin. They feel like they're going to die. So in the same way that we are always out thinking about our next meal, they are always out thinking about how can I get this drug. The difference is that food nourishes your body while drugs destroy it. And I think this is really what evil is all about. We usually think of evil as being the opposite of good, right? Good, evil, binary, easy, right? No, 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 no. I really believe that evil is a perversion of good desires towards a destructive end. It's very important. Think about that. It's a perversion of good desires towards a destructive end. Take, for instance, the desire to eat. Is that a good desire? Yeah, it keeps you healthy, right? Take that same desire, make it revolve around heroin, and what happens? Becomes bad, right? Same thing can be said for strength and fitness. Is it good to stay in shape and, you know, be strong? Is that a good thing? Of course it is, right? Keeps you, makes you live a long, healthy life. Take that same desire for strength and make it revolve around power, strength, and abuse, and fighting, and all of a sudden what happens? Becomes bad, right? Now, these evil inclinations that we can be prone towards, they don't just take over your life instantaneously. It happens gradually over time. An alcoholic does not become so overnight. It usually happens over a period of months and years. So it begins very innocently, right? You have an extra drink or two during the week just to relieve a little bit of stress. And then it kind of graduates from there to where you're having a drink every single day until eventually there's no event that you're going to that doesn't include alcohol. It happens so slowly, so imperceptibly, that you've dug yourself into this hole without really realizing that you've even done it. And then you're looking at it and you're saying, how do I get out of this? And this is where Larry Hayes and his story comes into play. You see, when you are in that hole and you don't know how to get out, that's when you need somebody who's walked that path before who can help you find your way to a better place. And that's what Larry did for a number of people who are in this congregation. Larry was very open about how alcohol destroyed his life, and he was also very open about how AA saved his life. Now, if you know anything about AA, you know that there's how many steps? Twelve. Okay, and oftentimes they say the first step is the hardest step. This is what the first step says. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Why is this the first step, the hardest step? Well, because you have to admit that you need help. You have to admit that you have a problem, that you have something that you can't control. And the truth is, we have a lot of problem doing that. I mean, who in here wants to admit, yeah, I can't fix the things that are going on in my life by myself. Nobody wants to admit that, right? That's a hard thing to admit. 
So when you get to that point where you're looking at it, you say, no, I got it under control. You want to know how you can tell? I'll just give you the, the, the in right here. If you're wondering, do I have a problem with this? Just go three months without drinking. If you can do that, no problem. I think you're probably good. But a lot of people, they say, oh, well, I could do it if I wanted to, right? But it's a lot harder than that sometimes when you have a problem with it. So Larry Hayes, he was very, very good at helping people take that first step. He was inspirational to them. And the reason he was so good at it is because he wouldn't just take the first step with you. He would take the second and the third and the fourth. He went the distance with you even when you made mistakes and you fell back into your old ways. He was there for you no matter what. And you want to know why he was there for you? Because of his faith in God. Larry Hayes truly, truly believed that the Christian God was a model for how we are supposed to live our lives. Larry's God was always there for him, and so he was always going to be there for you. Now, in my mind, I think this is the most important thing you can have when you're dealing with something like AA or any other addiction cessation program. The fact is, these therapies are only as good as the people who are walking alongside you. When you have made a choice to fill that deep hole inside you, that void with drugs and alcohol, the only thing that is going to be a proper substitute, the only way you're going to get clean is if you're willing to fill that void with love. And that's what Larry could do. He had this gift for being able to love people who felt unlovable. And he transformed lives by being able to do that. And so I want to end this morning by offering you two paths. Two paths that you can go down. The first path I want to offer to you is if you or somebody you love is struggling with addiction. If you haven't quite been able to come to the point to say, hey, you know, I do have a problem. If you haven't quite been able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, maybe I've been doing something wrong. I want you to come and see me. If you're even questioning that, I promise you, no guilt, no judgment. I take you as you are, and I will help you get the treatment you need. If you know somebody in your family, though, who is struggling, somebody who's over the edge, and you want to get them help, come see me as well. Because I want to help give you a plan so that you can get them to a place where they can actually get into recovery. Now, that's the one path. The second path I want to offer to you this morning is one that you personally, you out here in the congregation, can offer to somebody who's struggling with addiction. I know a lot of people in here grew up with addiction in their homes, like Liz did, or I know some of you are recovering addicts, like Bob. And if you are on the positive side of those experiences, my prayer for you is that you might be willing to walk alongside people who are trapped by their own evil inclinations. I believe that if you've been able to overcome those demons, that God calls on you to use that knowledge and wisdom to help other people who are struggling and to help them create better lives for themselves. So whether you are a person who are struggling yourself, whether you are somebody who knows someone who is struggling with addiction, or you yourself are in a place where you can help somebody, I hope you would act. But most importantly, I hope today that you would walk out of here if you are in a place where you do need help and that God would move you in your heart so that you might stand up and say, I can't do this on my own. Because I want you to know, we are here for you. Amen. Thanks for listening.
And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.